Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Relative Pitch. It's so glad to see all of you here again, and it's wonderful to have our guest with us, Dr. Chloe Swindler. Did I do it right? Yes, you got it right. <laughs> Performer in the freelance Boston area, educator at Boston Conservatory and the Berkeley College, and entrepreneur with her newest development in Trumpet Fundamentals. We have a triple threat here with us today, y'all. And it is amazing to finally connect with her um, after seeing her always on my Instagram, making me want to go practice. So thank you for being here. And thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you get to this juncture in your career and life? Oof, that's a big question. Um, so I I started off uh, learning trumpet in the fifth grade. And I, um, you know, throughout middle school and high school, I played in my local youth orchestra. The first orchestral piece I ever played was Pines of Rome, which at the time I did not know was like... <laughs> Uh, it was the offstage parts for Pines of Rome. I was in eighth grade and I was like, why is this music so hard? Everyone else is playing it. So I, I should be able to play it. And I would definitely describe a lot of my musical journey as no one telling me things were harder than they are. And so I just thought, oh, okay, someone put this music in front of me. I just need to do it. Um, or, you know, no, my, none of my teachers really talked a lot about how, oh, this is a really high excerpt. This is a really difficult excerpt. They just said, this is a piece of music that I'm giving to you today. When my teacher introduced transposition to me in middle school, she just said, this is a new skill that we're learning. She didn't make it out to be this kind of, your brain is going to flip upside down when you try to move between keys. I would say a lot of what I credit um my kind of current success too is that I had a lot of really good educators who um, did not tell me things were hard. Um, I would learn that later, but in the moment, especially for my younger students, it's something I still do now. So I did orchestral playing a lot through middle school, high school. I studied with um, an orchestral teacher, uh, Betsy Bright Morgan. She's in the Tucson Symphony. So I had specifically an orchestral teacher. Um, and then by the time I got to college, um, I um, I auditioned only at uh, Boston University. I wanted a school that had a liberal arts program. Um, I was actually my high school valedictorian. So a lot of what I really loved is I wanted to be in liberal arts classes. I didn't exclusively want to go to a conservatory and I wanted to keep taking non-music classes that would challenge me and so I actually was able to do both so when I got to Boston University I was in the Honors College and I was in the College of Music or the College of Fine Arts and so I kind of lived like these two lives a little bit where on one side I was going to these academic classes and um, doing research papers and uh, kind of getting outside of my element with a lot of these liberal arts classes. Um, and I had to pick up a, a research project. I had to figure out something that maybe blended what I liked with music with something academic that I could talk about. And that wasn't something that I always necessarily got in the music department. So I'm very grateful that I was able to do both. So as I went through college, you know, a large part of what shaped me, one, I was in a school where we had a program that focused a lot on chamber music. Um, and I 
didn't know anything about chamber music before I got to college. So I had set out to be an orchestral player. I wanted to win an orchestra job out of college. And that was, I wanted to be full-time orchestral musician. And so going to college really opened up my mind to the possibility of, you know, I could do chamber music. I could be a soloist. I could play with orchestras. Um, I could kind of do a mix of everything. And so I started to play more chamber music. I, um, wanted to learn how to play a little bit of jazz because I knew I was just really bad at it. Like if you asked me to improvise, I would have just stared at you and continued to stare until you played something for me or gave me sheet music that I could play. And so I took a jazz combo class um, that was really fun and started to take uh, combo gigs. My best friends were engineers. They weren't in the School of Music, but they were amazing jazz musicians and they had a jazz jam session every single Friday for about a year and a half. So every Friday, that's where I went and it was very low stakes, super, everyone was super friendly, but supportive and encouraging. And so when I went to these sessions, I started to do a little bit more vocal jazz um, in a different setting. And so while all of that's going on, the other side of what, I was kind of exploring was, okay, I'm a black classical musician. Um, and so in a lot of the spheres that I occupy, especially as a woman of color, um, there's kind of debates, especially as a, a trumpet player of like, okay, there's female trumpet players, there's black classical musicians, like where do we kind of find our mix in the middle? And so a lot of what I grappled with um, during all of my time in college and graduate school combined nine years is um, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why aren't there more of me here? Um, and how do I tell the stories of, um, for me, what my research turned into was a lot of how do I tell the stories of these Black classical musicians who have um, walked these halls and gone through the same sort of trajectory I've gone through? And how do, how do I highlight and uplift their their stories and and lives in a kind of impactful way. So a lot of my time during undergrad was really shaped by the protests that were going on, um, especially, you know, the a bit more of a rise of BLM or the Black Lives Matter movement at the time. And I remember actually uh, kind of going to, wanting to go to a protest and asking one of my colleagues in the brass department, um, you know, oh, do you want to come with me? And we're all in a group. And this person said back to me, thinking this would be funny, hanging out with you is my contribution to the Black community. And that was the first time for me when I started to kind of get these little like, oh, I'm not going to go to that. Or you're talking about this, but, you know, I can make a joke of this. And so a lot of my time during college was okay, I'm trying to block this out, but I go to the gym and these stories are on TV. I'm trying to relax and I can't relax. I'm I'm told I need to prepare for my lesson, but there's another kind of, I don't know, national story on the news that is making it really hard for me to sleep or go to class or do the things that I need to do. And so I kind of lived in these two worlds for a little bit of time and I didn't know how to kind of merge them. Um, and it wasn't until my senior year of college when I had to, uh, I had to do an honors thesis, an honors project. And so I chose to do mine on African-American female instrumentalists. And I sought out to find a 
specifically a black professor who taught at BU and in the music department at the time there was one and he was adjunct he's amazing um but I didn't want to I wanted someone who was maybe full-time who would be um there to kind of guide me through the research process as well and to kind of be a real mentor for me because I knew I knew I was going to go through it I knew it was going to be a journey because I had never taken black music history classes I had never really learned anything in a classroom about our own histories. And so I still remember the first day with my advisor, um, Gene Jarrett. He's now, I think, maybe the the dean of like the liberal arts and sciences department at NYU, or maybe he's moved on now, but he's made the rounds. And, and we sat down for our first day and he said, so who do you know of? And I said, Esperanza Spalding. And he said, great. Who else do you know of? And I said, I cannot name a single other instrumentalist, like uh, outside of vocalists. Mm -hmm. um, and so I still remember him pulling up on the computer, like black female instrumentalists. And then like whatever the Google search came up, we really struggled to find resources um, to kind of flesh out what this research project would be. So what he was helpful with for me was he was actually an English professor and he um, had worked in the African-American African studies department. And so he was giving me research help with finding the historical side of things. And then um, I was getting help um, from the honors college with the writing side of things. So I would say a large part of in college, what helped was I was doing a lot of playing, I was doing a lot of chamber music, I was also trying to figure out just identity-wise how I operate in the classic world, classical world and move between all of these spheres, and then also becoming uh, a little baby researcher and uh, learning about archival work and all of these things. So that kind of shaped that period. And then I love chamber music. So I ended up, um, I auditioned at Yale, at the Yale School of Music for my master's. It's actually, again, the only place that I, I auditioned. And I remember my, um, I met with Alan Dean, who was the teacher at the time, after my audition. And he says, well, why do you want to come here? Like, what other schools did you apply to? And I said, this is it. I put all my eggs in this basket. And, you know, I said, I really am interested in Black music studies and research. And one of the things he told me after I got in and I had started studying with him was, I wanted you to come here. I mean, there were three of us. Yale is a full full ride school. So you actually get paid to go. It's a free master's at an Ivy League school. And there were three spots that year. And I remember him telling me, I knew you weren't just going to play trumpet. Like I knew that you would come and you would be a part of like the Yale community and that you would want to um, do things maybe outside of the department and that doors could open for you if you were able to do that. So that's also what I was able to do. Like during that time, I um, got a job working as a research assistant for the Department of African-American Studies. And um, I was part of a black graduate network at Yale. And, you know, the five of us from the School of Music would meet with like the five other black students from like the environmental science school. <laughs> and we'd do these kind of um socials and I would say a large part of of uh, my time at Yale was really grappling with again being like a, a black classical musician at an Ivy League institution and trying to figure out okay I've got some archives here of black composers 
um, and Black artists. Um, got to see the archives from like Lorraine Hansberry, from um, Langston Hughes, from Margaret Bonds. Um, I think they had some stuff from Florence Price there, but actually getting to see like the music there was really cool. Um, and during this time, during my master's as well, I started to do actual chamber music professional work. So I got hired um, by Rodney Marsalis. He has uh, groups called the Philadelphia, the Rodney Marsalis Philadelphia Big Brass. And so this is the first time when I really got paid to travel and play. And so at the time, I think I was maybe 21 or 22 and got to travel to Wisconsin, travel to Iowa, travel to do a Southwest tour. Um, we did shows in Philly. We did just shows kind of across the U.S. And it, that was the first time when I saw really how powerful music on the stage can be um, and actually got to branch out outside of like I'm from a very small a small town in Arizona. I'm from actually like Vail, Arizona, which is uh, like a 30 minute drive from Tucson, Arizona. And a lot of it is ranch land. Uh, it's more developed now, a lot more developed. But um, so for me coming from like a smaller place like that to get to actually travel and make music and get paid to do it was really an incredible experience and kind of started my career as a chamber musician as well. And so I did that while I was at Yale. And then when I got to UCLA, a lot of what I focused on was going back to like solo music. But at the time, I was also working with Jens Lindemann, who is kind of a, a business guru kind of guy um, when it comes to um, specifically trumpet. And what was crazy was I was working with him during the pandemic uh, I started studying there in 2019 and I finished in 2022. So I had him for a little bit before the pandemic started and then just the bulk of the pandemic. And some of our lessons, what I really loved is he would show up and um, there's this meme where it's like, got to find a way to make money off of this. Um, and that's kind of what some of the lessons were like, where he would, Jens would bring this idea like, oh, I want to do this Gershwin big band Um set but i need to figure out how to sell it i need to figure out how to market it because i need to get funding for it um because i need to make people care about this like it's a big deal and if i'm going to spend time on it i need to figure out a way that the money will follow that um and not in a get rich quick scheme kind of way but in like an actual like sort of business model for your music work and so that was something that i hadn't really been kind of behind the scenes for before. I hadn't really seen um, someone talk about their creative process in this way and like scaling it in that way. And as someone who is like a band leader, um, that was really helpful for him to share with me that sort of uh, part of the process. And so I did that. Um, I learned a lot from that. I also worked um, for a little bit of time as a booking agent for that brass group for the Rodney Marcel's Philadelphia Big Brass during the pandemic. So I actually went to professional music conferences and um, pitched the group. My very first event, there was a, a speed networking event. So I had to pitch the group 17 times, like back to back. It was like a one or two hour session. And so I very quickly had to learn what is the right thing to say to someone who has X thousands of dollars and wants to bring in your group to play. What do you tell them? Um, what do you highlight from the brochure? 
what would you even put in the brochure? Like, what are some of the things if someone is, if a presenter is only going to hire one brass group for the entire year, why should it be you? And why shouldn't it be Serif Brass? Or why shouldn't it be, um, I don't know, another brass ensemble that, uh, Minozal Brass, anything like that. So working in that uh, capacity really helped me to think about the marketing and advertising side of what we do of, okay, yeah, you're going to play, you know, this chamber music, or yeah, you're going to play the solo set, but why should we hire you for it? Why should we pay you this money for it? And uh, as opposed to hiring another artist. Um, and that, uh, when I worked and went to those conferences, I would actually go table to day table. And I took all of the brochures from every musician that I could find in every performing group. And I went home and I studied all of them. I took what I wanted from each of them. I took everyone's business cards and then I made my business cards. And so a lot of this process for me, um, that kind of brings us a little closer to where I am now, but a lot of that process has been just trying to get into an environment where I'm interested in something and someone I can learn from someone in that environment Um, and kind of, taking everything I can from that situation. Um, and a lot of it has been some mix of you need to know how to market and advertise yourself, but you also can't rely on identity labels, you know, to progress your career. And and part of this has been kind of a weird and difficult lesson at times to learn, but at the end of the day, people will always hire or how do I say this? your artistry will always show. So if I was going out and I was saying, you should care about me because I am a black female classical musician. And that's the reason why I, I want to be seen as someone who is able to uplift and highlight our community and our um, accomplishments. And in addition to that, I want to be seen as a kick-ass trumpet player. I want to be known for, the recordings that I can do or for, you know, the pedagogy that I teach, I want to do both. I don't want it to be either or. And so I think a large part of this whole journey for me has been trying to figure out the identity part of it, the part of it of what do I want to be known for and like, how do I support my own community and like uplift us at the same time? It was a yeah. lot of talking. <laughs> it's a lot of really good things. I know there's a lot of stuff that we talk about often about like how everything has to have intent and there is mm. always intent behind something. And if there's not, it's very clear. Like it's very clear when someone's disingenuine. It's very clear when someone is genuine. And I know uh, Lauren deals with this a lot uh, in Seattle with both her ED position and working with the mm-hmm. symphony. So, and Lauren, do you have anything? I mean, God, (laughs) (laughs) there's just so much in that to unpack. Um, I think the first thing I want to do is go back to how you were trained um, with this idea of you weren't told what was challenging. You were just given things and put in front of you. I think that's a really interesting concept and like my brain was doing both things like I was going there's so many benefits to this and then I was also doing the devil's advocate of what could go mm-hmm. wrong with this method yep. um 
And I wanted to ask you specifically about that is as it seems like you are deploying this technique within your own studios. And I want to know, have you had any pushback from like the of not telling a student because the only re I'm thinking about it in the context of when especially students of color having an alternate reality than their their other peers in the room and yeah. if they're going through you know this this their education not being given those those heads ups and some people would even call them grace you know that grace of going hey this is really rough you should not go home and beat yourself up that everyone else in the room is playing this at a certain level and you as an eighth grader coming and playing this crazy offstage solo like you know like those things I could see very easily I would have gotten into my head immediately um if I wasn't given the warnings that I was given as a young student a young black student in a very like I was the only one at my camps and doing the things I yeah. was doing and so can you speak to that because I'm, I'm yeah to unpack that a little bit yeah definitely i think there's uh like two parts of it from it because it happened both with my trumpet playing and like the lessons that i had and also with like the social situations i was in like i was never told like it's really uncommon for there to be female trumpet players um and part of that was funny because in my local youth orchestra we had um I can think of three or four of us who made up the section and it, almost my entire trajectory through my career for undergrad, we had many points where we had more women in the studio than men. And same for uh, when I got to UCLA and did my doctorate. And so in some ways, some parts of it wasn't on purpose. Some parts of it was like the situation I was in was unusual and I didn't know. Um, so that was like the unconscious part of it. And by the time I did get out into the professional world, I was like, okay, this is really, really, really uncommon. It's becoming more common, but is uncommon. But I will say the other side of it, I will say there's pros and cons because there's part of what I have to do is scale to the level of where I think the student is at. So for example, I do think I was ready to play a lot of the things that were in Pines of Rome when I was asked to play Pines of Rome. Um, but for some of my students, I would say, okay, we've never worked on these type of rhythms before. We've never gone up to this part of your range before. Like I, I wouldn't throw them into the deep end like that. But part of what I do in my lessons is I'll put something that's slightly above their playing skill level in front of them and we'll work through it and I'll treat it like it's just the next progression. And then you know, then we'll have a conversation about it as they're saying, you know, it's actually pretty difficult. Like, yeah, it, I'm sorry. Like it, it is uh, like feeling a little bit more difficult now. Here's some things you can do. So I think there's a way to work through it where you're figuring out what the scale and where the levels are. Um, so no part of it was throwing me completely into the deep end, which I appreciate. Um, but I will say what I really was missing was you know, in times when I got to college and someone like that colleague said something like that to me, I wish I'd had professors who could have helped me navigate more through through that period. Uh, and by that, I just mean I wish I'd had more mentors of color through my college experience. And it really took me until about my junior or senior year to find that. Um, a large part of what I credit in my strength to getting through some parts of that through undergrad was uh was my dad who uh, was from South Carolina from Newbury South Carolina was from one of the last group in 
where he went to high school is one of the last high schools to desegregate. Uh, it was a black man who spent 30 years in the Marines as they're also going through, like they were desegregated, but the barracks were still um, segregated. Um, and so, you know, he told me every step of the way, this is going to happen to you. And I lived in these kind of two worlds of like, that's not going to happen. And then they would happen and I would call him. I, I remember during college, I would call him and I'd be like, this happened to me. Each one of these stories that kind of came up of what I now know as microaggressions. And he would just, he would kind of laugh and he'd say, didn't I tell you this would happen? Oh, so wow. I would say, <laughs> I would say it would have been helpful along the way to, especially in the music world, I didn't know how situations like this could arise. And I will say this is something a lot of my, I have a lot of students of color that I work with, either that I worked with at Cal State LA when I was on faculty there, or um, at Berkeley this past year, I actually worked um, for about a year and a half as the assistant director of engagement programming and learning in the diversity and inclusion office. So I actually worked basically a year and a half as a full-time administrator while doing freelance work. And during that time, I helped support a lot of students, especially students of color, queer students, students with disabilities. And a lot of what we talked about was um, our, our, our way of navigating this world is going to look a little different. And there's a lot more ways you have to protect yourself in that journey. So I will say identity wise for students that I work with, especially of marginalized communities, I will not just send them out into the deep end or send them out into a gig or send them into a space where I know something might happen without talking to them about it. Mm. But for things that are music wise, that I know are skills that are within their skill set, or maybe one level or a level and a half beyond that, I will definitely send it. I will give them that, that sort of dangling carrot to say, you can get to this next level and I will help you along the way. I won't throw you to the deep end. Um, yeah. That uh, makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. Anthony, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I, I just want to just further unpack that the the part of one of your colleagues, you know, saying you are my my uh, um, contribution to Black Lives Matter and, and showing support by being friends with you. I'm showing mm -hmm. my support yeah. as if you were not a person anymore. You. Mm -hmm you are something like tangent, like you, you're something else and not just yes. a person. And also kind of uh, diminishing your qualities as if you mm -hmm. represented the entire black population. And this is a lot of, again, why I've, I've spent probably an unhealthy amount of time thinking about identity. And this is something I talk to a lot of my students about is, trying to not minimize in any way but acknowledging that it will be a process that will probably never be done um like i'm still learning new things about myself or or things that i hold against myself that need to be unpacked mm. and so you know that's not the only case where where someone has said something like that to me uh something similar happened at yale there were protests after um the I think the Yale police drove off campus and and um, there was an incident of violence and uh, there were protests happening. And I asked my colleagues, this is like three years later after the incident at BU. And I asked my colleagues, my, uh, you know, do you want to come to the protest with me? And one of them said, what are they protesting for? Higher welfare payments. 
And these instances for me, that makes my rehearsal spaces unsafe. And I don't, you know, you can talk about safety or safe spaces or uh, anything like that. But what those comments did for me was say, I cannot show up as my authentic self to this rehearsal space. You are not a person that I can talk to about things that are, that I'm genuinely processing or that are going on. And some of these folks have also gone on to, to um, get DMAs and are college professors. And they're people that I, if I knew students, I, I don't know if I would send them to, to their, their studios. And I think that's something, you know, in our communities that not every space is built for students of color and not every studio is built for students of color. And, you know, when I went to UCLA and I started my doctorate, I actually, within the first week, very few people, uh, I, I haven't talked about this very much, but I went up and I withdrew. I um, went to the admissions office and I withdrew. And I just felt this is the best thing for me because I just spent two years at Yale, which was an incredible, incredible, incredible music community and opportunity and incredible pedagogy, like top of the line. Like I credit a lot of what, what I have today in my playing and experiences to going to Yale. But I also walked away with an incredible amount of like racial trauma that I held with me and continue to hold and unpack. And I didn't know if I could do that again for another three years. And so I remember I drove home. I thought about it some more because it had been weighing on me the whole summer. And I decided I'm going to stay. I'm going to stick it out because there's going to be a me in a couple of years or next month or something who needs to see that it's you can do a DMA, you can finish it, you can go through the works. And I know that if I get to the other side, I'll be on on faculty somewhere and it is going to be easier for someone in a program to go through their undergraduate or graduate studies because I can be that mentor that maybe I didn't necessarily always have the the like mentors of color to help with in that journey and so a large part of what motivated me honestly to finish and actually see through my doctorate was yeah sometimes you got to be some part of the reputation representation yourself and open some of those doors. And a large part of what I recognize as well is I don't represent all black women. I don't represent all women of color. I'm a mixed, I'm half black, half white, I'm a mixed woman. And so part of this journey as well has been, you know, acknowledging that my success isn't the success of every black woman and our success, we come through and open doors for each other and, you know, learn from that journey. So those comments have made some of those spaces unsafe and they've they've really made me have to work really hard to figure out how to safeguard myself in some instances and how to talk to my students about it because these sorts of things still happen. And um, I, it, it kind of re makes you reach a kind of crossroad of do I want to to do this? Do I want to be one of the, what, less than 3% of classical musicians who are Black and engaged with an orchestra? Is it worth it in that instance? And I do want folks to say yes, but only if it's healthy for them, if that's something that they they want to do, if it's a passion they want to pursue and they can find a workplace um, in some capacity that has that safety built in.
Mm-hmm. I love that you you decided to pay it forward um, mm-hmm. and you visioned the new generation of students that are coming up, um, which uh, I chuckled when you when you said you called your father and uh, he said, I told you because I know for me personally, that was the uh, it was the exact same thing. My father and mother. Yep. said. And I feel like our generation, because, you know, our generation, we didn't necessarily were in the segregated times. We we mm. were very been blessed and privileged in that way that we didn't have to go through it. But our parents. Yep. And yes. so, and of course, every child, we, we grow up listening to our parents. We're like, OK, dad, OK, mom, like you're just talking. And then until we go through these experiences and we're like, oh, snap mama or dad was right and then we call yeah. them like well we tried to warn you but until <laughs> but until we go through that that's really when i think the growth for us happened and yes. i think the best way for our growth in our generation is now to inspire the next generation to say okay look let's um as you were saying earlier if you know that so-and-so over here is not going to respect your your um you as a whole person, being a marginalized community, being whatever you are, then I'm not going to send that student to that person because you're not going to be valued. And yeah. so let's try to uh, safeguard as much as we can. So I, I'm very thankful that, that you decided I'm going to pay it forward to the next people that come after me. I love that. Well, part of that, too, is just you carry so much with you. I mean, how are you going to practice your scales, your etudes, your fundamentals, your, you know, whatever you're assigned for orchestra or band? If you have all of this also, like, going around in your head, if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go to my lesson, but is my teacher going to say something, like, wildly inappropriate? Or I'm going to go to my chamber class, but is this person I'm in brass ensemble with? Are, are they? I mean... I don't know. Are they going to say something? Part of what I want, it's not, you know, there's always this joke. And again, I worked in the DEI world for about a year and a half full time. We, we grapple with a little bit of the pushback of like, aren't we making snowflakes? Aren't we making people who aren't prepared for the real world? But your psychological safety is important and your emotional safety is important. And uh, from a lot of, especially my my black colleagues uh, and I in the the classical music community, there are many times when we've not been okay, especially over the last couple of years. And many of us can identify colleagues who have made it unsafe for us to exist in the spaces we're in. And so part of that is you. Part of paying it forward is also, hey, you. I, I can give a student a choice. I can say, here's some information about an experience that I've had. And I want to give that person the benefit of the doubt as well to, to their own growth and their journey. Um, but I want you to make an informed decision about um, about how you can move forward with this if you want to work with this person, if you want to be in this situation. Yeah, I, and that is so true. Like an informed decision is what uh, all students need about everything, including that school, including what happens outside the school of music, inside the school of music, professors that they might not even take class with, but they have to pass in the hallways. And just another thing is like, when those things happen to you, you didn't have a wall. You were like, Oh, this is my friend. And then immediately like, bam. But then also when you go into rehearsal, a learning space where you should be learning how to do the thing, you now have a wall 
So how much information are you actually receiving compared to what you could actually be receiving with your wall completely down? And then also in like the grander scheme, the more ethereal scheme of like music making, being completely vulnerable and all this other jazz. But like in a learning environment, having your walls brought up yep. because of someone microaggressing because they didn't. And if they did thoroughly think through what they said, that's even worse, but they didn't thoroughly think uh think through what they said you now have to have your walls up all the time and i've like i've like with lauren and anthony being friends with them for so long i've like sometimes actively seen it and sometimes mm -hmm. like like i've actually been like boop and i'm like okay lauren, we are leaving <laughs> i'm like lauren, i'm here but i just got a phone call me and lauren gotta go or me and yep. anthony gotta go and it's just like having seen that and if you don't, if you've never seen that, anybody in our audience, if you've never seen that, it is a scary thought. Like mm -hmm. seeing someone actively go, I am now disengaged because I need to protect my emotional bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And so that just brings another thing. Like we have to thoroughly think about everything we say, because even if you don't think there's intent behind it, there is some intent behind it. And mm -hmm. well, I, I think part of it too is like, you know, both of these comments were made because the person thought it was funny. Like they thought that I would laugh and they knew that other people might laugh too. Mm. And it's like, maybe I don't get the joke. I really wish, you know, now, especially with, with some of the, the trainings that I've done on, on especially yep. DEI and the arts, I have responses that I would keep in my pocket now and not as though I'm like waiting on guard for anyone to say any of these things but something very powerful to ask is can I ask what you mean by that yes mm. <laughs> that's my favorite question <laughs> more about what you just said yeah I would love to learn uh, more about about that yeah about that, what something that I've realized in spaces and especially for for people of color that have migrated into what we call the upper echelon spaces, the arts, for example. Mm -hmm. Some people think that we have shed our Blackness to mm -hmm. a certain extent. So, oh, you're not really part of them. You're, you're amongst us. So I can right. say this borderline racist mm -hmm. thing to you and you're going to laugh or you're going to accept it because you, you're, you're trying to be one of us. And it's like, no, no, right. no, 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 no. Right. I, I've been I have been in those situations and honey, I'm gonna check you right there. <laughs> when I wake up, I am I'm a black man. So mm -hmm. there there is no way to shed any of that. Nope. And let's be honest, even if I did, or even if I wanted to, you were not gonna accept that at all anyway. So so let's call a spade a spade. This mm -hmm. was not this is not funny nor should it be, and should you ever repeat that to anyone else, honestly. And part of what's what's embedded in that, and a lot of what I've talked about over the last year and a half, is some days you pick your battles, because it's not your job to really explain these situations to people, especially when you're in that moment, and you may not say that's something you want to say uh, or, or mean to say. What your immediate reaction might be might just be what comes out. But, you know, there's kind of two roads. One is to lean, lean in with the understanding of intent versus impact and say, okay, this person might have intended this as a joke, 
I don't think it's funny and to go on about your way. Mm. Um, or you might say, this person intended this as a joke. I didn't think it's funny. I'm going to talk to them about the impact that it had on me. Right. And I find that you have two choices uh, in that. So you can explain the impact or you can move on and just make a little note to yourself. Right. And this is something that I use, you know, I also have done um, in these sort of DEI trainings, trainings on conflict resolution. And these are great for especially if you're in a chamber ensemble or in communications with other musicians where it's not just for microaggressions or where things go wrong um, or not just for microaggressions, but if you disagree with someone in a rehearsal, you know, you can say, Oh, that, that felt a little personal. Like, let me sit with that and, and try and unpack why that happened. Or you can say, you know, in the rehearsal, Hey, you know, can we talk about that? I, I don't really think that came out how maybe you meant for that to come out. And I think for us, as you were saying, Michael, to have, you know, safety in our ensembles and in our our chamber groups and whatever, whoever we're making music with, that we cannot be our most vulnerable and authentic musical selves if we have these walls up. And, you know, if you've ever gone to rehearsal where you have a disagreement with someone else in that ensemble, those are tense moments. Those are tense rehearsals. You're not having fun. Nobody's having fun. And that's not the state of music making that we want to be. And this isn't to say you need to be friends with everyone who's ever said anything, you know, like harmful or hurtful to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there does need to be an assessment of like, especially for musicians, what's our intent, what's our impact and how do we how do we um, find a way forward either for ourselves or together um, in our relationships with folks in this community. Mm-hmm. This has just been an amazing and thought-provoking episode and just talk with the amazing Dr. Chloe Swindler. Thank you. And think about, you know, yeah, I was practicing. I didn't think so. I was like, <laughs> I'm sure control. Um, but it was amazing. And I know Lauren, I, and, and uh, Anthony have been just enthralled with this. It's provoked a lot of thoughts. And I hope everybody in our relative village relative pitch village and audience has taken something that they can distribute through their students through their colleagues or even to themselves because sometimes we all need biasy trainings and we all need biasy checks and i think this was an amazing episode so thank you so much and i will see all of you next time thank you thank you